you know, I came in to this session very dismissive and kind of cocky, and, and then by the end of it, I was just this blubbering wreck. Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm Laura Hersher, and today I have the incomparable pleasure of talking to Carl Zimmer, New York Times columnist and prize-winning science journalist, whose latest book is She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. The Greenwood Diagnostic Laboratories of the Greenwood Genetic Center have been giving greater care through quality laboratory services for over 40 years. Greenwood helps patients and families solve their diagnostic odysseys through state-of-the-art, comprehensive, molecular, biochemical, and cytogenetic testing. Learn more at www.ggc.org. Wow, Carl, that's a big title. Yeah, well, it's a big subject. <laughs> it is. It's a big book. <laughs> I got more muscle tone from carrying this <laughs> book around. It's excellent. Um, so there's really a lot to discuss here, but I have to, I have to start with the fact that you begin the book with a visit to a genetic counselor. Indeed I do. Yeah. And it's like good news, bad news for genetic counselors. You begin the book with a visit to a genetic counselor, and then you tell us that it was like the most terrifying experience of your life. <laughs> well, I, I don't blame the counselor, though. I mean, I, I, in hindsight, I think she did a great job. Uh, she was just, uh, you know, just very, you know, gingerly trying to get our family history and, you know, see if there was anything that, uh, you know, we should be, you know, particularly aware of. Uh, and it was just the first time that anybody had asked me for a family history. And I, I was uh, appalled at just how little I really understood about, uh, you know, all my ancestors and, and, you know, what their health had been like. Be because it, And it all got very heightened because this was our first child. And I suddenly thought, wait a minute, like, I, I am now a part of heredity. I, I am passing down some portion of what I inherited from these ancestors, and I don't have a clue what it is. And, and you know, I came in to this session very dismissive and kind of cocky, and, and then by the end of it, I was just this blubbering wreck. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, I got over it, and our daughter was just fine, but uh, it's definitely an experience that has never left me. <laughs> yeah, it is comforting when you see their face and, you know, Sort of like everything recedes into the background. Um, yeah. Well, it's a it's a message, right? It's a message for genetic counselors because you're the sort of patient client that you'd think, well, you know, this guy, this guy isn't going to need, you know, lots of explanation and comforting. This is, you know, the world's most science curious person. He's like incredibly well informed. But well, I even I mean I I, I must have in hindsight, you know, this is this is like. Um, almost 18 years ago now, I guess, uh, in hindsight, I must have come off a bit insufferable because, uh, you know, I said, like, look, I write about science. I write a lot about genetics. I know all this. You know, I'm not even sure why we're here. You know, she, she's trying to explain to, to me, like, how genetic diseases are inherited. But then, you know, we started talking about uh, an uncle of mine uh, and who had an intellectual disability and, and uh, you know, it was just something that 
just we just didn't really talk about in the family. I mean, because that generation just didn't talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know what he had. And and she was trying to think like, well, he, you know, he might have this, he might have that. And I'm and as she's talking about these things, I'm like, oh my god, like I could I could be passing something down to my child. And she's like, no, actually, we don't worry about that. I'm like, how how can you say don't worry about that? Like I get very angry, you know. And she's like, no, we no, don't worry. And I'm like, you know, really getting noisy. I'm like, how would you know? How can you say that? And she just looks at me and she says, using the words of the time, 2000. She's like, well, you'd be retarded. And I was like, all right, yeah, X chromosome. I only have one X chromosome. Oh God! Like once I realized that I was completely forgetting my high school genetics, I just shut up because I just realized that, you know, your emotions in a moment like that can completely shut down your, you know, your, your database of knowledge. Um, so yeah, I think Gen X counselors, you know, they probably, I'm sure you see that every time you deal with someone. Um, but that's certainly something that's important to, to know going into the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we do. We do. And, and the, the, we see people like doctors who feel like I'm supposed to know this. So it's harder for them to Uh, ask questions than they may not have. Anyway. Yeah. It's Mm. definitely a part of the job. Um, uh, but I did think it was both, uh, lovely and then sort of like amusing, like, hair pulling like oh no <laughs> your genetic counselor scared you this is terrible <laughs> but now that you said i was going to ask you to tell us her name but now that you said she did a good job it's not such an emergency um, <laughs> yeah. no it's all on me oh uh, so i want to say that i always said to myself or actually it's my twitter bio my twitter bio is just genetics it turned out to be more complicated than we thought and i always said that if i wrote a textbook about genetics, that would be the title. It turned out to be more complicated than I thought. And I'm reading this book and I thought, oh my God, Carl Zimmer wrote the book. Every (laughs) single piece of this is like, here's the story. But it turns out to be much more complicated than we thought, right? Like that's the, like every piece of the book like that. Yeah, I, that is, I mean, it's, it's complicated in a fascinating way and in a way that just lends itself to telling all sorts of stories, um, which is just why it was, the book was so much fun to write. Um, but I did feel like there was a, a value to writing a book like this simply because, um, people have a very, we, we all have a very strong urge to take heredity and, uh, simplify it. <clears throat> we we think of heredity as being a very powerful thing, and and we think and because it's powerful, we think it's simple, you know. So that you can, you know, if you want to explain something about yourself, you look at your ancestors. Um, yeah, you know, it's, you, it's, you, every you try, it's every yeah, day. It's every day. Absolutely. We're, it's funny if you really start to think about how much you use heredity to define yourself, even if you don't think about the word heredity explicitly. I mean, it's really all the time. And so, uh, you know, I just wanted to say like this thing, this concept that we use to define ourselves uh, and our connection to the past and the future, it's much more interesting than uh, we think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the whole book for me was about how the complexity of heredity resists simple storytelling. And... I 
felt where you began was with simple storytelling that got people into trouble. Like, well, and there certainly are. I mean, you know, people have told themselves stories about heredity for well thousands of years, um, and um, they have been right in some ways and wrong in other ways. But it is interesting how how very often those stories about heredity um, are almost like weapons that people can use to assert power, uh, assert power over other people. Um, to deprive other people of of their freedom, uh, it, it uh, it's uh, it, it's a it's a da- it can be a very dangerous thing. So so three so those the three stories, and one of them's about sort of the Habsburgs slowly dwindling into inbred, you know, decay and decline, and that's pretty straightforward. And 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 one of them was about. Emma Wolverton. You want to talk a little bit about the Emma Wol- Wolverton story? That's, that was really fascinating. Sure. So Emma Wolverton uh, was actually uh, maybe one of the most famous people <clears throat> in the United States for a time in the early 1900s, except that nobody knew her name. Um, the reason being that she was the subject of a book called The Kallikak Family, um, which wa- was a pseudonym that the author, a psychologist named Henry Goddard, uh, gave her. So everyone knew her as Deborah Kalakak. Uh, and the reason that I zeroed in on Emma Wolverton is that she was at the epicenter of uh, the eugenics movement. Uh, she, so she, her story really <clears throat> is, is a fascinating way to dive into what this experience of eugenics really was. Um, the, the, we're talking now in the early 1900s, so <clears throat> genetics has just been founded as a science and in no time flat these new geneticists uh some of them are saying aha well we can explain human nature with genes genes we don't even know what they are and uh and then we can remake society uh and in and so the idea was basically um we should <clears throat> encourage people with the desirable genes to have lots of kids, and we should stop the people with the undesirable genes from having kids. Uh, and so Henry, Henry Goddard was the school psychologist at a, a school for the quote-unquote feeble-minded, an institution for, for children with a whole range of conditions or people or children who were just difficult and no one knew what to do with them. Uh, Emma Wolverton was sort of an inconvenience to her parents. Uh, they literally just needed to get her out of the house and so they institutionalized her uh and uh but henry goddard judged that she was you know slightly below average intelligence uh and he came up with his name for people like that a moron so she was this moron and then goddard who was getting excited about genetics sent out a lot of his staff to go research the families of his students and he discovered that um, with Emma Wolverton in particular, he was really convinced that <clears throat> her family tree was proof that feeble-mindedness was uh, inherited, and that meant there was nothing you could do about it. And uh, uh, you, you could not like educate someone out of <clears throat> this condition. And so, therefore, you should institutionalize them. Or, you know, he was he was a uh, very strong advocate for sterilization putting laws on the books to allow states to sterilize people who were deemed unfit. 
Um, and you know, this, this story, um, was used for years and years and years. And, and, you know, Nazi Germany, they literally put the Kalakak family in, in an educational movie that was shown, you know, just in regular movie theaters. Uh, and that, you know, this was proof, uh, that, you know, the Nazi program was going to make Germany better. Um, so, you know, I, People, you know, maybe sort of vaguely aware of eugenics and they know, well, they know, well, the Nazis were bad, but I think it's really important to just <laughs> Nazis really, were bad. Well, yeah, maybe, but, we, maybe we didn't internalize that lesson quite well enough, Carl. I don't know. Well, um, I mean, what, you know, the, what, what was it that made them <laughs> bad? Well, part of it was that they embraced very toxic, wrong ideas that were born and bred in the United States. They were. That's a really sad thing about there was a, a eugenicist in America who came back from visiting Nazi Germany in its early years and complained in print. They're beating us at our own game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They, they were. And it it's wasn't terrible. and it wasn't and it wasn't like eugenics was some some terrible thing that a few fringe people did. Many of the top scientists in the United States <clears throat> and many politicians, presidents were all in favor of eugenics, in both as an idea as in, as, and in a practice. And to somehow say, oh, that eugenics thing, that was just some crazy little thing, and let's not talk about it anymore, is just a terrible mistake. No, it had high-level support financially, um, from scholarly corners, from uh, politicians all over the place. It was really uh, something, something a lot of people believe. It was mainstream, a huge failure to comprehend the complexity of the science to bring it back to your book um, yeah and and i and what's to me what's really striking uh is that um we could maybe rationalize it or or play down the importance of it by saying like oh they just didn't know any better and that's not true uh, uh so thomas hunt morgan who won the nobel prize for his work in genetics he was um he was breeding uh, fruit flies at Columbia in order to try to get at some of the fundamental patterns of inheritance. And, you know, he discovers that he can get some Mendelian traits uh, being passed down through his flies. And so he just starts to, to look at, um, you know, these different traits like eye color or the shape of wings or the shape of their legs and, and so on. Um, and so, you know, flies are really small and pretty simple compared to us. Um, and yet, you know, he very quickly, in the early 1900s, while all this eugenic stuff was raging on, he is finding, oh, look at this, you know, a trait as simple as, as the color of a fly's eyes is yeah. controlled by many different genes. Yeah, not you know, one, I, not I've, one gene. I've, I've, and, bred and some, so, I've bred some fruit flies in my time, like yeah. many people in my field, and... Yeah. And he, did, he didn't keep the, he didn't keep this to himself. I mean, he actually, <laughs> no. you know, he, he actually wrote a, not only published papers about this, but then he he wrote a big book in the twenties where he's he's saying he he dedicates uh, several pages to saying like, wait a minute. So yeah, no, he actually he, had an intellectual flirtation with the eugenicists earlier in his career, mm -hmm. and then grew frustrated with their failure to uh, understand or respect the science or to be scientists. Um, so, and he, he was a strong advocate against it. Um, and there were others, but I want to get to like, I want to get to some of the other things. So you set up this situation where you're like, okay, 
these simple stories are inadequate and they're dangerous as a way of understanding heredity and understanding the world. Um, and look at how complex these systems actually are. And then you just go through all of these, well, it's just like nerd porn, right? Like all of these ways in which um, things get more complicated. Um, uh, bacteria passing passing genes outside of reproduction sideways, gene transfer and the complexities of development. And I, one of the things I love about this book is that you really stress the role of chance uh, in development, which is the one part of heredity that often gets completely overlooked. Randomness. Uh, yeah, we think of we think of uh, the the genes we inherit as being this. Well, some we call it like the blueprint of life, or 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 the book of life. Like it's somehow there's this this very strict fixed quality to it. And the fact is that um, a lot of a lot of what happens during development um, are decisions to go this way or that way that can be really fundamentally like a roll of the dice it can be depending on the sort of noisy levels of a particular protein does it pass some threshold or not right right related but different you talk a lot about i think this is an underappreciated fact even in the field even amongst clinicians uh mosaics and chimeras um and by the way thanks for the clear and coherent differentiation between what is a mosaic and what is a chimera um I used them wrong for a while, so <laughs> I always appreciate that. Um, uh, I, I I think there were some there's some some great stories about the the crazy things that have happened. Do you have any favorites? Uh, I I so the the uh, the chimera stories <clears throat> are really, really fascinating to me because you have these situations where um, there are two of these that I I found. I should explain a chimera is a, a person who is made up of cells that come from two ancestors. Uh, and, and so this can be like a, a twin in the womb where the cells were absorbed in, into the other twin's body. And then that other, other twin died, disappeared. Um, there are also ways for m mothers to absorb fetal cells Um and become chimeras with their own children. So there are a few different ways of becoming chimeras, and it's turning out to be remarkably common. Yes, you, um, you, you literally showed that my children are technically in my brain, not just <laughs> metaphorically in my brain. <laughs> That's right. They move out of the house, but they don't move out of your brain. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, they, these, they're, but, you know, it's always great to find those stories of people who's, who show you, the, the stories that show you how, uh, life can be altered by these these bits of biology, and so there. I found two examples of women who were literally told that they were not their children's mother, and, and you know, and in, in both cases, they're like, "Well, wait a minute, I was actually there," you know, <laughs> when that happened, and yeah. they're like, "Nope, sorry." And one of them was actually uh, was getting taken to to court for fraud. Uh, and and was really struggling to get get uh, the, you know the the justice system to accept that sh she was really their mother, and so you know it turned out what it was is that in both cases is that their blood where you test for DNA comes from one population of the cells and uh, their eggs came from somebody else, 
in other words, so they weren't identical genetic matches. And so they would say, no, no, it looks like it's a, a relative of some sort, but definitely not your child. So, uh, so yeah, it's those, like a niece the, or a nephew, right? If it was a twin that, that they absorbed, it was like their sibling took over their germ cells. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it's a, um, it's a, it's a, it, I wonder like, you know, like between chimerism and, um, mosaicism where you have <clears throat> a mutation arising as in someone, as they develop, um, which then in, gets inherited by a lot of their cells. <clears throat> I, I wonder about how that is going to, uh, how that affects genetic counseling or because, you know, there's just there's this basic assumption. Well, you just take, take a few cells from somebody and get the DNA out of them. And that's the person's genome, singular genome. But right. it, fundamentally there are lots of genomes in everybody. So how do you right. figure that well, out? Well, we're, we're, we're seeing that in a speeded up on steroids way when we do tumor testing, because now we're starting to do genetic testing of the tumor, and people are realizing that tumors change so fast that one side of the tumor can be different than another spot in the tumor. And, um, and you have to do more than one sample and test over time and so on. And your, your body's not a tumor. It doesn't have that kind of uncontrolled growth, but it sort of happens in slow motion uh, where, where you get changes and, uh, if they happen early, they can be parts of your body. I think it is really important for us to keep in mind in terms of the oddball results. Like it's one of those things to keep in the back of your mind to make sense of the oddball result. Um, that, that, uh, that the story can get very complicated there. Um, the way we keep, misattributed paternity in the back of our head to explain an oddball test result. Um, this can be uh, another sort of, you know, explain the inexplicable. Um, and it is really important to keep open. And I think as we start doing more and more sequencing, we're just going to find more and more of this kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there, I, oh, there's so much I want to talk about, but I, I there are two things I need to get to. One is, you don't do a chapter that's explicitly about race. But race is the subtext of a lot of this book. Um, like you're answering the people who are looking at ancestry, race, ethnicity, uh, and, and using it to, to support simplified and often bigoted views of the world and at times I felt like you were writing an answer to those people. Um, but you never explicitly say that. But was it on your mind a lot? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, <clears throat> but I think, um, you know, one, it, it, it's uh, important not to just sort of quarantine the discussion of race to just one chapter as if um, it's just this thing over on the side. Because I, I actually, I feel that if you're writing a book about heredity and you're looking at the history of heredity, um, race is uh, a, a very important part of that story. And, you know, I, and it, by telling that history along, you know, step by step along the way and revisiting it um, and kind of with uh, what we know now <clears throat> about DNA uh, and human history, you start to see how, uh, the the way the kinds of concepts that are very prevalent today about race uh, 
are are they themselves have been inherited from the 1500s, from the 1600s. There, there are these very old pre-scientific ideas, uh, and um, they were given sort of a scientific gloss for a while, but um, you can see how uh, it was just, there was a lot of, of social factors that were driving people to justify race, just in the same way that people were looking for a way to justify, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, say, um, keeping poor people uh, poor by saying, well, they just, they're just feeble-minded. There's nothing we can do. So, you know, to, to, raise, replace, to replace the ideas of like God intended it this way, you know, um, or an alternate sort of a, a pseudoscientific version of the world is the way the world is because it was intended you were supposed to be on the bottom. I was supposed to be on the top. Yeah. And, you know, some, some people have said, have, you know, responded to, to my book or maybe, you know, and also sometimes to my articles in the New York Times where I touch on some of these things by saying like, well, it's obvious that people are different. Um, and so that they're, therefore somehow I am denying the obvious, but, um, you know, nobody, nobody is, is denying that, uh, humans have some genetic diversity and phenotypic diversity. And, um, and no one is denying that we have our ancestry, uh, is, you know, somewhat different person to person. Like nobody's denying that, but it's like, what, when you start to talk about some sort of entity like race, which, uh, somehow it magically is able to explain all sorts of things, you know, not just someone's skin color, but like their, their, differences between average income and how people do in school and all these different things like it, it becomes magic and um and that takes you back to a time where race was was this uh was this fundamental category that you know some people literally were claiming was um the the you could trace back to the bible um that that you know blacks were the the uh the descendants of ham noah's son and they inherited his curse and so everything about their appearance was an outward sign of this curse. And guess what? That also means that it's okay to enslave them. I have mixed feelings. I wonder how you feel. And you've done a lot of this in the book. You do a lot of it. You go through your own genome. You look at the medical aspect, but you also look at your, your recent ancestry and your distant ancestry and your super distant ancestry when you look at your Neanderthal genes and so on. So you, you take the deepest dive possible into your own genome and, you know, I wondered, was that satisfying to you? Was it interesting to you? And do you understand, how do you feel about the genealogy craze uh, of the moment? Um, because I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, as a, as a hobby, I think, okay, so that's fun. But it does seem to tie into um, some, some of these simplified narratives about race, especially the way they present it. So uh, what... One thing that fascinates me about genealogy is why do people do it? Like, why? Why do you need to know these things? <clears throat> and there are some profoundly important reasons. Um, so, for example, uh, African-Americans who basically had um, their genealogies uh, erased uh, by being taken from Africa and put into place and not being allowed to to read or write, um, being moved around like property. And so being able to 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 piece together some of that genealogy uh, is a is a profound experience. Um, trying to f find out if your 
a descendant of somebody famous, that seems to me a little uh, something worth kind of poking a little more at. Like, why why do you want to find out that you're descended from somebody famous? And 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 does that make you special uh, as opposed to other people? Um, so you know, I um, I I. My my mother is a big genealogist, and she found out that you know we we have an ancestor who came over on the Mayflower, yay! So we get to be in the Mayflower Society, yay! And and not only that, but he is famous in a certain sort of way because he fell out of the Mayflower and had to get pulled back in. <laughs> um, and so everybody knows the story of this guy. I forget his name now. I confess, who fell out of the Mayflower. Anyway, I write about that in the book, and then somebody emails me and says, oh, my gosh, this is the same guy. I'm related to him, too. I'm his descendant, too. So we are related. And, and you know, actually, I come across an article that where somebody actually did the math and estimated that in the United States, there are probably about 2 million people who are direct descendants of this guy who <laughs> fell out of the Mayflower. So what does that mean that, oh, we're related? Yeah. I mean, the fact is, everybody's related. Um, at some point or another, but that's not good enough for us. So genealogy is this has this incredible driving force, and now that uh, it's just it's like jet fuel to bring DNA into it because you can use it to find close relatives. Uh, you can use it to get infer something about your ancestry. You know, look at a look at a map and kind of infer like what percentage of your ancestry comes from different places, and so. Uh, what what has been a uh, an obsession for centuries is now really taking off. It is. It is. Um, I, for one, just to put in my vote, and then I have to sit, bring to something else. Is I, I I wish they'd present it a little differently. Um, I, I I think something about they then say like you're twenty five percent Irish or this or that. Um, I, misses the point that we're almost entirely all the same and you're only looking at these, you know, subset of variable spots and uh, it it sort of takes us away from commonality and emphasizes difference in a way that makes me a little uncomfortable. But, it, you know, it, it's to me, uh, one thing that's fascinating about companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe is that um, they're kind of moving into my business, which is... Um, writing about heredity, about genetics, about ancestry for a big audience. Their audience is their customers. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so it's really interesting to me to see the strategies that they use. They have great graphic designers. Um, sometimes I am with you. I think they make uh, mistakes. Uh, and, and sometimes those mistakes are maybe like cutting corners to because they're a business and they don't want to get people too distracted you know they want to keep people you know excited to come back for more um so it's a it is problematic and i but you know it would be interesting i could imagine you know going to a company uh website to look at your results and start off by kind of zooming out and just kind of looking at your genome uh compared to other people's and just recognizing that yeah it's really you know fundamentally it's like around you know maybe you know 0.1% differences you know some something along those lines i mean it's you'd see these little sprinkled differences among <clears throat> just sort of a fundamentally identical genome yeah i mean even compared to other species we're very genetically uniform yeah i put that right on top so carl 
even though you were frightened by your genetic counselor, you are a very <laughs> brave man. You know why? No. Because you took on epigenetics. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be scary. Um, I, 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 so I think most people in this field know that um, uh, many, many fine writers have tried to say something about epigenetics and, and gotten kind of dissected in public. Um, it, it, it's just, uh, um, I think the background of it is simply that there's some very interesting, very intriguing work and people have, uh, have, have taken that and run with it to places where, where there's no proof and made giant claims. And there's, or there's a whole sort of coterie of scientists who flinch at the very mention of the word fair. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, and and uh, I, I I seek those flinchers out, you know, I, because <laughs> I, I think that I think that uh, I mean epigenetics, sort of broadly speaking, is profoundly important. I mean, it's it's essential to just our existence as people, uh, and yet uh, it has uh, taken on this bizarre life of its own in in popular culture and. <clears throat> and and uh, you know so you know as as a science writer I think I can do two things at once I can I can show you know the science that 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 confirms just how important epigenetics really is uh, and then sh- kind of say to folks like whoa don't believe everything you see about epigenetics because. I mean, epigenetics is is has totally saturated popular culture. So, I, you know, I've been it's been brought to my attention that you can take uh, classes for epigenetic yoga, um, <laughs> which supposedly somehow like reprograms your own DNA as your in your downward dog position. And I was, you know, in a bookstore when I, while I was does it, out. Does it make giving, my telomeres longer? Because I'd like that. Uh, yeah, I'm I want sure we can. Yoga. Yeah, we can throw that in. Yeah, yeah. some some <laughs> other special positions. <clears throat> but also, I was uh, in a uh, bookstore uh, while I was doing doing my tour, and uh, I was just browsing around, and I know, and I saw this book, uh, which uh, is written by a. a practicing psychologist who who said who tells you that if you have problems um psychological problems if you have anxiety you might have inherited that because of trauma that your grandparents or great-grandparents experienced and then they pass it down epigenetically to you and he's here to help you undo that undo so, it. okay <clears throat> for a price yeah <laughs> well um, it is it is it 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 there's no doubt that there's like a lot of crap out there. And then you describe a, uh, an experiment with mice and um, mice that were allowed to smell a certain chemical and then uh, given a shock in association with it. And of course, they learned to fear the shock. And the sort of surprise finding was, according to them, if you uh, used the sperm, but used them like a sperm donor so that there was no other conditioning and pass them down, they were able to pass down the memory of that particular chemical to their offspring, which is a hard one to swallow because how does it make sense? But, um, and there's so, so it's, uh, I mean, I think Kevin Mitchell said like extraordinary, it requires an extraordinary, uh, amount of proof because there isn't a mechanism. Um, and you reported that, and 
maybe stayed a little on the fence, like, huh, here's the reasons why this doesn't make any sense, but also here's the experiment. And, you know, I wondered if I get you off the fence a little bit. Do you think that that happened? Do you think that, that that's possible? Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not claiming that the, the scientists who did this experiment did it in bad faith by any means. It's just that, um, that there's a lot of, I, what I'm, what I see, what my job is to do is to sort, of, to to help readers understand like what is going on in, in the sort of the scientific community in terms of scientists doing these experiments and then other scientists sort of building on those experiments or questioning them or so on. So right now, <clears throat> the fact is that there is a very strong debate uh, in the scientific community, and um, some of it's in print. Um, and then some of it you get when you just kind of, you know, sidle up to people and say like, well, tell me what you really think. And, you know, you're having these sort of off the record conversations. Um, and, you know, people will say, well, no, I really think there's something exciting here. And, and other people say, well, I think this is just, um, you know, a badly designed study or the sample sizes are too small or so on. Mm -hmm. Um, the, 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 see that, you know, I don't, I, I mean, there, this is this is not it's not like I mean this research is continuing to move forward. So that experiment you mentioned where the the mice were exposed to a smell uh, and then got a shock and the and these male mice then learned to associate the smell with a shock and then you know the the, the claim was that their their offspring also reacted unusually to the same smell. Well, they after I just recently, like after my book came out, they published another study, um, which is frankly just also very intriguing. What they did was they they trained these male mice to be scared of shock, uh, and then you know did that same repeated that experiment. But then they took some of those mice and and uh, un basically did a, a process where they unconditioned them, like they basically kind of taught them not to be scared of it anymore. Mm -hmm. And then they took their sperm, <laughs> and then their offspring didn't respond unusually to the odor. So you know, you're like, wow, like that's <laughs> weird. It's amazing. Um, actually, yeah, I was, yeah. I was we're, we're getting towards getting to the end, and I I actually wanted to finish by asking you. You know, it's so hard with the rate of change and the rate of new developments in this field. It's like it must be hard to stop. Um, is there anything that happened after the book was over that you, that you said, oh, I really wish I could have put that in? Um, <laughs> there's, oh, that's always the case with the book. I mean, as soon as it goes to the printer, it's, you, you know, it's obsolete. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I there, there Should are have some... been historians. Well, yeah, well, when you write it as a journalist, when you write a book, you have to sort of put yourself in that historian frame of mind. Like, you know, your history might stop today, but it's got to stop somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and you have to accept the fact that things are going to happen in the future that are going to make your No, no, book... no, definitely. Definitely you yeah. do. I just wondered if there was something that came along that you thought, damn. Well, that 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 experiment is a, is a is a good case in point. I think also the all the research that's going on with gene editing and CRISPR um, uh, is it, it, it's so exciting and spooky. Uh, and and there, even since the book came out, there have been some some very important studies uh, on it. And um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I just keep wondering, like, what what's going to happen with CRISPR? What how how profoundly are, is it going to is going to sort of change the landscape of heredity? Um, next and, next book, next book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I maybe I need to wait like ten years or twenty years to and then take stock and see. If we're, <laughs> I don't know, know twenty definitely. It'll be a lot in 10. All right. So I also have to just stop, although I would love to keep talking about this book. And um, I really enjoyed it. It's not my job to give it a plug, but I will give it a plug. And I want to say for people in the field that this is the sort of book that sometimes you look at it and you think, wow, this is just what I'm interested in. And then you open up and you're like, oh, yeah, this is just what I'm interested in. I kind of know this stuff. But I honestly felt that um, every section had things that I had never come across examples I had never seen really um, was uh, full of shiny objects for me and um, fun and uh, wonderful to read. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for coming or well, not coming for being on the show today. And it's been a pleasure. Yeah, well, thanks so much. That's great to hear. I'm really glad to hear that you enjoyed the book. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Okay, thanks for joining us on The Beagle. Do read the book. Please subscribe. Follow me on Twitter. All that good stuff. Cheers. The Greenwood Diagnostic Laboratories of the Greenwood Genetic Center have been giving greater care through quality laboratory services for over 40 years. Greenwood helps patients and families solve their diagnostic odysseys through state-of-the-art, comprehensive, molecular, biochemical, and cytogenetic testing. Learn more at www.ggc.org.